Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with Booktopian Shanu and author and recovering doctor Yumiko Kadota to talk about her book Emotional Female. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me Joel. <laughs> I hope you don't mind being called recovering doctor. No that's okay I think that's the on vogue term for it these days. So, <laughs> so uh, that sort of gives a bit of a spoiler for what the book is about mm-hmm. but um, can you tell us a bit about how the project came about? Sure um, so I I guess I am still a doctor. Yes. <laughs> have been for just over 10 years now. But three years ago, I decided to walk away from the public hospital system. Um, I was training, hoping to become a surgeon, but eventually it just got a, a bit too much. And well, that's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it got way too much. Um, burnt out, became very, very physically, mentally unwell. So I decided to leave and I... When I got a little bit better, I decided to write a blog post about it and it ended up being read by a few more than the 11 subscribers <laughs> to my blog. Yeah, a few more people other than my family and friends read it and ended up in the news. And that's how um, a book um, opportunity came up. And then I ended up writing a book about it to extend from that blog post. Very exciting. And the title, Emotional Female, can you tell us a bit about how that yeah. came to be the name of the book it's um it's actually some something that i got called when i was working so thanks to the asshole who called me that because they <laughs> gave me an awesome title for my book um i was on call at the time for the hospital and i got rung at three o'clock in the morning about something that was totally not urgent at all even though i was on call for emergencies and so i well i started politely and it, it escalated a little bit to the point where i said look don't don't do this to doctors who are on call because um, I didn't want anybody else to be called at that time because we're all so overworked and so sleep deprived and it's, it really does wreck your week when you get called in the middle of the night and your sleep gets disrupted constantly. So I set it to stick up for myself and for my fellow registrars who do that sort of work and I got called an emotional female for saying that. So um, <laughs> that's one of the many kind of things I discuss in the book that affect women in medicine in particular, but I'm sure women in other industries can relate to being called emotional. It just seems to be a label that gets stuck ex- exclusively to women. So um, that's that's how the title came about. Yeah, and it's seen as exclusively a negative thing mm. when you're in an industry that is caring for people. Yeah, exactly. So and I'm gonna... presumably most people get into it to look after people. Well, yeah. So... And somehow being emotional <laughs> is uh, down to, a, a bad thing. Yeah, it's seen as kind of a weakness. So I thought I would reclaim it just like Hillary reclaimed a nasty woman. I'm emotional and I'm proud of it. I think it's what made me a better doctor. So I'm, I'm okay. Maybe not at that time. It actually made me even more <laughs> emotional. I was so angry being called that that I couldn't get back to sleep. But um, emo- being emotional definitely is a good thing, especially if you're in um, a caring industry like medicine when you're looking after people who are sick or injured. Mm. It reminds me, in the book you talk a bit about um, how your excellent memory was a huge help for you in medical school when you were having to learn all this material and you talk about how emotions helped you remember things Mm. and I thought I'm not sure if you intended for that to tie into the the overall theme of the book but I thought it was fascinating this idea that you know you paid attention to where you were and the senses of it but also how you were feeling and I thought it's weird it's weird that emotion is so tied into memory 
which is so important for doctors. It's also so important for people to be emotionally aware and compassionate. And yet it's a, it's a, it's a, considered a downside yeah Um, it it wasn't a deliberate connection to the title Um, I did it more to kind of say I I guess I had I wouldn't say hate but it was a bit of an advantage for me to have a good memory early on because it meant that I could do lots of other things and not have to study so hard but it also meant that other people didn't like that they were like how How do you know all this how can you remember all this and why aren't you spending all the same time I am well yeah it it actually got got cut from the book but um there was a student a few years um junior to me who said oh I heard that it's because you're manic that's why you can do all this stuff because you don't sleep and I just Uh. thought oh just don't why why does somebody who is productive and can do lots of stuff suddenly get called manic? You know, just don't yeah. don't use words like that lightly. Yeah, especially you know. if they're also a medical student. Well, who, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's going to be treating someone at some point. Yeah. And will go through a rotation, I'm assuming, in psychiatrics. Well, exactly. Just, uh, <laughs> it's not at the helpful, time, I remember thinking, oh, let's not use psychiatric terms casually like that. That's not cool. Um, it, it didn't end up in the final version of the book. You know, it, it did go through a few rounds of editing. But I do remember things like that being said, even from a very young stage so I'm like oh haters everywhere <laughs> and I think that's the thing that's going to surprise a lot of people when they read the book and um, we were mentioning just earlier when we were talking that um, it's really helpful to have the timelines put into the book because a lot of this stuff um, you know a lot of the stuff is very familiar to I'd say a lot of women mm-hmm. but also some of the things in here you know to a lot of people would just seem something that would be very archaic and that might have happened you know to women 30 or 40 years ago, not three or four years ago, which is, you know, when a lot of this, you know, in the last 10 years when a lot of this was yeah. was happening. So it, It's baffling, isn't it? Like even the fact that we were not allowed to wear pantsuits. You yes. Know? There are some surgeons who are so old school that they believe that women should wear skirt suits. And so it was a big no-no to wear a pantsuit to an interview. Yeah. So I remember being told that and thinking, <sighs> okay, I better go out and buy a skirt suit because I didn't have one. Um, to all of these interviews that I ha- I'd have to go each year to um, to get a job. Which is crazy. Oh, that's the other thing I would love that was I thought would be fascinating to lots of people who don't really have a lot of connections to the, you know, to s- surgery or mm-hmm. to, you know, hopefully in their lives they had, don't have much need of going, yeah. getting, you know, having a surgeon operate on them. But um, can you tell us a little bit about the um, this hierarchical structure, this ladder, as you, as you call it, yeah. um, and sort of that grey area where you found yourself in when you weren't on the... I feel like saying the program sounds like a cult. Yeah. <laughs> it was deliberate calling it the program. The program. Yeah, because yeah. we were so obsessed with it, you know. So yeah. when you finish medical school, so th- there are undergraduate and postgraduate medical schools. I went to an undergraduate school and um, after you finish studying, it's usually about four to six years. Mm-hmm. Um, you go into the public hospital system to train. You do a year of internship and then you do one or two years as a resident and then next level is registrar. And then from there, you um, apply for a training program in your chosen specialty. So for me, I really wanted to do plastic surgery. So I applied for the program a couple of times. Um, and you need to officially be chosen onto that program in order to succeed and finish your specialty training. So that was the um, that grey area that I was in. Um, and uh, until you're on that program, you know, you really have to be on your best behaviour, you're really reliant on your senior colleagues to give you good references to proceed. So it's a very high pressure situation. Yeah, so it's, it's basically interview, interview based. So yes. it's not, you can't just sit an exam and the, the first 10 people that get the best results 
get in right there is a lot more lot more to it yeah, than that there are a few different things that they assess so they look at references they look at your cv and then there's an interview as well yeah wow it's like being in permanent um sort of review you know for a new job yeah it's exactly like that even you though you've been at medical school and been training for what eight nine years by that point yeah <coughs> so and you were performing crazy. so many surgeries solo yeah, I was at that stage already. Um, yeah, when you go to medical school, you have this idea that being a doctor might be a secure job, but there's no job security at all because every single year you have to reapply. Um, it's it's not a rolling contract, you know. You have the contract is only one year at a time, wow. so it's every single year that you're sitting these interviews. I think a lot of people just wouldn't think about that because obviously mm. most people, when they interact with a doctor, it's going to be a GP, mm-hmm. and that GP could be at a medical practice where they could just be they could own it or they could be there for twenty years or something. But yeah, it's but such when you first out, yeah, yeah, when you first start out, it's um every single year that you have to prove yourself and and that itself reapply. just must be very stressful. Yeah, um, it can just that be un- that uncertainty. Let alone, um, it seems like you know when I mean we won't go into too much spoilers, but <laughs> um, <laughs> it Spoil- seemed like spoilers. That's really rough. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like when things were were getting really tough, you didn't actually have a professional organisation that mm. you could turn to that was actually there to support um, people that hadn't yet the doctors that hadn't yet gone onto the program. Yeah. Has that changed at all in the last couple of years? It hasn't really left? changed. I mean, the college, there are different colleges for the different specialties and they look after trainees. But unless you've been accepted onto that training yeah. program yet, you're not really owned by anyone, anyone. as such. Wow. Um, the hospital does take some responsibility for the junior doctors. It tends to be more for the first two years. So if you're an intern or a resident, I, I in, in my experience anyway, it seemed like they were well looked after. Yep. But once you're in that kind of unaccredited registrar stage, it's very unclear who looks after that group of people. So I think that that group in particular is a very vulnerable group of doctors. Mm, that really came through. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me, con- considering what's happening in the news at the moment in mm. Parliament House. Yes. Um, in what I've heard about that is that Parliament House, you know, the, the, the staffers that work for particular um, MPs and ministers, they there is no HR in Parliament House. Yeah. You know, they live in this grey area where the people who are who they're trying to impress are the same people who decide whether or not to take their complaint seriously. There's no separate hierarchy for that. Yeah, exactly. And that's how it felt reading this book. Yeah, that's a great analogy because it, it, it just kind of makes people so um, vulnerable to exploitation when, when that's the setup. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's I, no kind of impartial in-between person or an HR. I mean, there is an HR department. Yeah, but it's... They were just kind yeah. of disinterested, really. There's well, and also all the incentives are stacked to yeah. mean that you don't seek them out because well, exactly. you don't want to make trouble, Yes, right? yes. So most doctors wouldn't even bother going to HR because if that got back to the, the senior colleagues, then, you, yeah, yeah, that's not going to be good it's, for you. Yeah, it, it just sounds – I mean, that – as we get more and more into the into the book and all of the experiences, you know, you, and it's not like you had everything was terrible. You had, you know, you loved medicine, mm. right? That's why you kept doing it. Yeah. And you had some great experiences with some really great um, people that like gave you some mentoring early on. Yeah. And, um, you know, and clearly you took that on board and you were then mentoring uh, younger, younger doctors as well. But it's just, I think that's what, when you get to the heart of the book, that's what makes myself and certainly the other people I know that have already read it so angry. Mm. is just how like the system allowed people to do the wrong thing and then threw out all these people that were brilliant and who could have done amazing things for all of us and we will just never know we're just never going to know 
Yeah, that's. I had this conversation with someone else recently. We never find out what happens to people who leave. Yeah, I guess it's just um this idea of a survivorship bias, where the people who stay dictate what continues to happen, because nobody ever talks to the people who leave. Left. Yeah. I mean, sure, you, you get this kind of form that you fill out that gets sent to HR about whether you want an exit interview <laughs> and so on, but no one ever ticks you. I was just like, oh no way, I don't want any anything to do with this hospital anymore. I'm not interested in going back and having a chat about all of this. Yeah. Um, and I honestly didn't hear from anyone after I left that hospital more than a year later well actually when the blog post entered the news funnily enough I got a email from the um, hospital saying would you like to come in for a chat and I thought I just thought oh too late yeah too yeah. late now you can just read my blog post it's all there yeah. <laughs> exactly. if you want to know what happened there it is yeah you don't need to talk yeah yeah I was interested to see how much you thought I mean problems in, in that you outline mm-hmm. in the book are obviously systemic and there's a lot of sexism and racism and other sort of systemic problems but there's also just the problem of having this hothouse of extremely competitive intelligent people who are hyper focused and hyper competitive with each <laughs> other in this supposedly hierarchical system which yes. is not really hierarchical that is still about who you know and who you can oh, impress absolutely. so it's a lot of soft skills where you're also tricked into thinking it's a ladder mm. you know is that how i guess how much of it do you think is just the nature of having doctors all in one place <laughs> versus uh, you know what system. that that is definitely <laughs> a good point because we're all type a personalities mm. we all want to win we all want to get ahead um every i mean the competitiveness is what pushes people on and 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 achieve great things but sometimes it means that it's a bit of a doggy dog kind of mm. environment and like you say it's not really always based on merit i mean um, I didn't put this in the book probably for legal reasons, but um, <laughs> there is a character called Yoni and um, Dr. Whiteley. And that experience was quite interesting because this is a female surgeon and a, and a fellow female registrar and she got favoured over me. This isn't in the book, but this girl um, has a sister who is the international buyer for a high-end European luxury brand that that surgeon happens to love. So that senior surgeon got early access to things and staff discounts and Mm. things. And I just thought, "Mm, well, what can I possibly offer? You know, I mean, I worked at at MIMCO when I was in that uni. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly don't have that staff discount anymore. But, you know, there were little things like that. I, I didn't put in all of these details because I didn't want to come across as too petty or or to to nitpick every single thing that happened but I just felt like things like that definitely were involved um there's you know it's not exactly bribery but it's it's kind of indirect bribery isn't it absolutely (laughs) well when you have that kind of advantage it's it's covered up by the fact that there's this supposedly merit-based system Mm. you know there are other types of hierarchy within other organizations that are more explicitly about sucking up to your boss and finding ways of like getting ahead of other people where people don't really think but when you have a something that's explicitly called the ladder yes yes, it's a ladder you can climb up yeah and i i honestly could not (laughs) offer a discount on an amazing bag so (laughs) You could only offer your own amazing skills and work <laughs> ethic, which, are, you know, shouldn't. And I think that's what really make again, is another thing that just makes, you know, made me angry reading mm. it is like, it should be enough. Like you can yeah. see, you can see how much you love your job and how good you were at it and how like you, ma- and, and also you made um, all of the surgeries that you did so compelling. 
Oh, like it was like, (laughs) you know, like I I don't read a lot of um, a huge amount of nonfiction, but reading through this, it was like every time you came across a surgery, I felt like I was watching you, you talk, you know, compare yourself to Christina Yang, (laughs) like watching the like good parts of Grey's Anatomy where they're doing these like really complex things. And I was really like on my edge going, is it going to be okay? Is the finger going to like be all right? Like what's going to happen? And, um, you know, and you can't write like that if you don't absolutely have a passion for, for what you're doing. So um, again, like I said, it just, I think that's the thing that just kept every time. It's just, it's just such a shame that, um, you know, this, this happened and that it keep, that unfortunately it feels like it's keep, that it's kept happening because there hasn't been a change yet. What's, what are you hoping that people are going to, going to get from this book or what do you hope will come out of you having released this as a book to, to the world? I just hope that it contributes to cultural change in the hospitals. It's something that will take a long time. It's really hard to change culture. Mm. You know, I I do kind of briefly mention all these campaigns that the different colleges and associations launch, but it kind of feels like redesigning the wheel sometimes. Um, You come up with a campaign and there's a lot of energy behind it and lots of well-meaning people, but somehow it gets forgotten about and then... A few years later, another wellness campaign <laughs> is, you know, hot and happening. So, there, yeah, I think that it, it will take at least, I, I reckon, like 10 or 20 years before we see any kind of change. But I think things like this, I think sharing the experience can be powerful. And I think that, especially in the medical profession, there is kind of this kind of professional code of, of secrecy where we, we don't talk about things publicly. So I knew there was a risk in, in writing the book. I didn't want to kind of make the profession look bad in any way. But until people talk about it, it's just going to be another dirty secret that gets brushed under the rug and nothing's going to change. Um, and I think that, you know, my, my book is not unique at all. The only thing unique about it is that I've kind of put my face out there because <laughs> um, mm. most people w- wouldn't wouldn't really do that and if I was still in the system hoping to progress there's no way I would have done this but because at the time I chose to walk away it was easy for me to say you know what I'm happy to tell anyone who cares to listen that this is what happened to me and um, you know it might encourage more people to speak up about it or it might even give people courage to leave if they're having a really hard time because I don't think anyone should really have to suffer like that Um, you know, one of the, the memes I used for my, my blog post was one that read something like, um, you know, don't, don't kill yourself over a job that would replace you within a week if you mm. drop dead. Yeah. Um, we just work so hard sometimes for something and you think, well, what are you doing this for? Yeah. So hopefully by, by reading the book, someone might kind of stop and reevaluate what's going on mm. and, and try and prioritise themselves a bit more. Because I think, especially in a service job like this where you're, constantly looking after other people it's so easy to forget about yourself so um i hope that people kind of feel that it's it's okay to put yourself first especially when it's your health oh yeah yeah Um, that's so well said and it really feels that you know that that entrenched hierarchy and the fact that it's so hard and has been hard for a long time Mm -hmm. means that you know the incentives are not there for senior consultants uh to make it any easier because they, I mean, you say again and again in the book, yeah. oh, yeah, you talk to someone and they go, oh, yeah, I remember it was really hard. I blocked out all that time in my head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you kind of go, yeah, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> that, should be a, that should be a warning bell for you, not, not just a, yeah, okay, not we'll a, keep going then. Yeah. Uh, that's the other thing I was uh, so curious about. I mean, I think, I mean, you, you make a good point that, you know, the hospital you ended up um, working in at, with the hours that 
to most people would just be like, how is that even legal that you mm. could work was it like not more than 19 days straight yeah. without a break on 24 hour, like being on call for 24 hours. Like yeah. how is that even something that's illegal in Australia? It sounds like something that just wouldn't be allowed to happen. Um, is there, what, what is the reason that, that, that these senior consultants, or what is the reason that the whoever was doing the rostering gave for, like why is that a thing that happens in, yeah. in, the, world of, in the world of medicine? It, I guess it's the same excuse that keeps being used. You know what Joel was saying before yeah. about how it's always been done that way before. So no one bothers to change it. Um, so I remember going, did the last person do this? How did someone possibly accept it? You know, there's two registrars. Why wasn't it divided equally? Yeah. Why is one person doing 10 out of 14 and the other person does four? four. Yeah. It just didn't make any sense to me. And I didn't really want to complain because, you know, I needed to get my references for mm. that year's application. So I held back a lot until I started to feel physically unwell. And that's when I decided yeah. to talk about the roster and try and get it changed. I mean, in the end, it was futile, but um, it was just, it was crazy, that roster. I just don't know how it ever, um, it, it ever got approved in the first place. That's but right. I, and numbers of people looked at it and... I mean, a lot of the people that you went yeah. to, other doctors were like, that is not okay. You need to say something. But like, but as nothing you said, happened. you can't. Nothing you happened. did say something. And yeah. Nothing happened. And they they're just like, oh, well, if you can't handle it, if you can't handle pushing your body beyond, I mean, mm. you can handle it. You've been a doctor. You did all the training. You've done all the hours. You've done, of course you can handle it, but you yeah. shouldn't have to handle yeah, it. Yeah, that line you say later in the book, something mm. about the solution to the canary in the coal mine is not to make the canary it's stronger. stronger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, well, the, the coal mine is still pretty toxic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe do something about it. Yeah. When, yeah they don't and seem to listen to the yeah. to the warnings. And I, and I think that in some ways I, I was disadvantaged because I could do more surgeries. The thing is previous registrars who had done that roster didn't have to stay back Skip. late and operate on their own because they, they were, have the skills, right? They, yeah, they'd actually hurt yourself by being too good. Well, I was like, I kind of wish that I didn't know how to do the surgery because then I could say, I don't know how to do this. I need someone to come in and help, and then the operation would have taken place during reasonable, Civil civilized yeah. kind of business hours, not yeah. in the middle of the night or on, on the weekend when there's not enough staff around. So I think sometimes that that, that was tricky because obviously I wanted to impress my boss and say, yep no worries, I will do this, I know how to do this operation, leave yeah. it with me, all good. Um, but then there were other times when I went, oh, if I had been a bit younger or a bit more junior doing this job, like some of my previous um, colleagues, then this definitely wouldn't have happened. That's um, right, you would have had, they would have had to come in because they couldn't leave you alone. Yeah. They could leave you alone. But that's a terrible incentive too for unaccredited registrars it is. to be in a situation where the better you get at it, the more incentives there are for them to leave you there. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. you're there to provide a service and, and they love it because they don't have to come in. And the better you are at it, the more they want you to stay and yeah. the more work they want you to do. Well, yeah, and you get a lot of positive info, <laughs> like positive reinforcement because they say, oh, yeah, it's so awesome, like, well done. Um, oh, that's great that you were able to do that operation. So you feel good when you do it, but then you <laughs> at the same time you're exhausted yeah. and you know that you're helping out and you're making life easier for other people, but then you're kind of suffering. Yeah, but there's so. no, yeah, in the end, where did that get you? It wasn't great. Yeah. And, yeah. You talk, and it's, it's, it's wonderful that you were able to talk about that in the book because I think that would be very helpful for a lot of other people who, who will read that and may not have the same, you know, they might have the same kind of um, situation as you, but it might be a completely different situation. But I think everyone can recognise yeah. a point in which, um, you know, they got to where 
they just needed to have um, they needed a complete a complete break and unfortunately your break was forced on you by <laughs> circumstance yeah. um, but I think being and being so open about um, you know having the clinical depression and yeah. all of the treatments you tried and go to go through and sort of you know your journey that journey in the last part of the book um, I think gives hope um, to other people as well that no matter how dark something can get mm-hmm. and you really did go through some some dark times I did um, <laughs> um, you know that there is there is a way out and we should yeah. we should make clear to people <laughs> and, and that I, if yeah. there is a happy <laughs> happy ending yeah I, 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 I'm, I'm alive I'm happy yeah. I'm, I, my life is much better now but I think definitely it's something I wanted to do was to de-stigmatize mental illness I think a lot of people look at successful people and think oh they've never had any kind of issue yeah. you know but it's just so common I remember when I initially I didn't even want to admit that I had a mental illness or talk to any friends or family about it but once I did I was surprised by how many people experience similar you know mm-hmm. I have friends going oh yeah I'm on an antidepressant for this or I have anxiety yeah. it's actually really common and I think the more open we are about it the more we can accept it and and help other people um, talk about mental illness as well and I yeah. think you know, I like um, the quote, you know, check on your strong friend because yep. it's always the strong mm-hmm. people who you think are okay. Yeah. And But sometimes it's just a, it's a front. It's a front. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you just never know what people are going through. So to be able to talk about mental health was something I think that was important to me. And particularly interesting in that, you know, hothouse A-type a world <laughs> as well that you say in the book how um, doctors are, have a very negative attitude towards recognizing like mental illness army. in each other mm-hmm. yeah they, they can, you can have people who are trained psychiatrists but if someone else has a mental someone of their colleagues has a mental illness yeah. that they are it's harsh like a double standard. Or un, yeah yeah do you think that's just cultural definitely cultural it's funny because like we all study psychiatry in med- medical school and we're very understanding of patients but we don't have that same compassion for our colleagues. I just yeah. don't understand that. Yeah. You think you can just tough it out somehow? Yeah. It doesn't it, apply to you. It, it did feel like survivor sometimes. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Rough. Wow. What do you call that night? The tribal ceremony? <laughs> oh, yeah. Tribal council? Tribal yeah, council. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I didn't survive tribal council. <laughs> I think you actually did. I think at the end of the day, you did, right? I think that's the message. I left the, the island. <laughs> no, one, no one wants to be that guy. Yeah, that I don't want to be on season, that island. Right? No. <laughs> was that rich guy or something? No one wants to be him. <laughs> um, and the, uh, the, other, um, the, other, the other thing that makes me so sad is that how hard it was for you as a woman to, which we haven't, I mean, we sort of spoke a little bit, but that's the whole book's called Emotional Female. But like, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, There's so many issues. <laughs> yeah, in the medical profession, um, especially when you get to surgery. And again, mm. it's, a, it's, it's, it's again a difficult thing because a lot of people might just see doctors and when they see them, they're seeing their GP, which obviously yes. more women yes. uh, go into because of family and, you know, the hours are can be better. Yes. Um, and then when you get to surgery, sometimes you don't even see your surgeon or you are, you're so hopped up on drugs, you have no idea <laughs> if, who operated on you. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't even know what I even want to ask about this, but I just kind of, I just wanted to say that it was not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> and um, I really hope that um, 
Uh, I know you said you're doing a lot of events with women and that's fantastic, but I really want men, all men, yeah. <laughs> to read to read this. I hope men will to read, read this the book. book. Yeah. Um, and whoever has to give it into any man they know knows hands because mm. way- be, I will definitely be pushing it into the hands of men I know. Oh yeah. Uh, it's one of those books that I uh, obviously it has more application um, to women because it's your story and yeah. you're a woman. Yeah, and more women there are will obviously relate to it, obviously. Yeah. Systemic issues about sexism in medicine. But there are still plenty of issues that were very, very um, recognisable to me in my life in this book. It's not like it's not recognisable. Yeah. Recognisable to me and to all the women in my life. So I, I do think men should read it and it would be more impactful, I hope, if men read it. I hope so. <laughs> and, and also the mental health part, I think, would be good mm. for men to read as well because there's so much toxic masculinity and pressure for men to be strong. Mm. So I think that the more men kind of consume things about mental health, I think the better. I think that mm. it's, you know, suicide among men is, is a, a big issue in Australia, so yeah. especially in rural communities. So I think that... Um, I think if men can read more about mental health, that's also a good thing as well. And reclaiming emotional is important for men too, I think, is that men don't get called emotional. Yeah. But, but it's a good it's thing. It's because they yeah. suppress it so much that yeah. in most cases that yeah. it, they're not even allowed even to be defined as emotional. Mm. Somehow somehow someone yelling at someone, and it, you know, which happens a lot with a lot of men yelling. In the yeah, book. there's or a lot of yelling in the book. Or a surgeon somehow. stomping on someone's <laughs> yes, foot during yeah. said, whoa. Somehow that's not emotional. Yeah. Only yeah. the only when they, when they say emotional, they mean like angry. sad. Women, sad. women, yeah. Upset. Yeah. They don't mean angry. No. Which is just as much emotion as any yeah. other. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so they're just, yeah. they're just sort of, I'm like, do you not understand the meaning of the word emotional? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. really, it's really an odd there's, thing. It, yeah. There's so much. Going. I feel like we could keep. We haven't really touched on the racist parts of this book too, <laughs> oh that I think goodness. are really um, awful. But I feel like listing them would just be awful to list. <laughs> But do you, is there anything you want to talk about in regard in regards to that? I mean, as a you know Japanese background, yeah. um, coming to Australia, but you know English is your first language, uh, and you kept being treated like this person who didn't understand what was happening. Which again, um, I'm I'm just like, how is this possible in the 2000s that this is still something mm. that yeah is, was happening where people just presume it's it was bizarre how old fashioned some of the stuff that you you were quoting people are saying I couldn't yeah. believe that they were actually saying it out I loud I couldn't believe it either you. at the yeah. time yeah. <laughs> to be honest I was like what <laughs> yeah there were the, you know the, there's a scene in the book where a patient requests or, or didn't want me to treat them because I was not white so that, that was really shocking to me and I didn't know how to deal with it at the time. <laughs> so I had to go and, and hide in a store cupboard to kind of, you know, calm down and, and, and go back professionally because I was thinking, wow, like someone actually just said that to me. They didn't want me to be that yeah. doctor because I'm yellow. <laughs> I know. And you just don't, you just don't, and you, you, I mean, you would hope, I mean, unfortunately it's in Australia, we like to think of ourselves as being, you know, not racist, but that is not correct. Mm. <laughs> um, I remember being asked myself, like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so where were you born? And I was like, you know, Australia. Like, yeah. where are you from? I'm like, Australia. Yeah, yeah, but where were you born? I'm like, Australia. <laughs> and they like, go, where, where are were you, you born? really from? Like, Camden, all right, Camden. <laughs> That's where I was born, Camden <laughs> Hospital. <laughs> and people just not, you know, just taking... Oh, it's absolutely... My, You know, my family's <laughs> from Egypt um, and I, I do not look like I am. 
And so I just pass as a white man in a society that is very easy on white men. <laughs> but, you know, I see it with my with my brothers who look more Middle Eastern and, you know, constantly. Every, I've been out with them where they have been asked, sitting mm. next to them, um, you know, where are you, where are you from? Yeah. And <laughs> they don't know where they're from because they could be from anywhere from the way they look. Yeah. They're just not from here. Yeah. And that, it doesn't matter how well you speak English or anything else. It's just... It's, it's it can be awkward sometimes. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. But I guess the worst part is when you think that it's affecting their perception of your skill. The qu- yeah, your yes. skill and the quality of the care that you can give. You know, you know. Sometimes they thought I was too young to be a doctor. Now, you know, oh, a lady surgeon or yeah, you know, yes, or a nurse. Yeah, yeah or, or, all the time. I, even now, actually, um, I still get asked whether I'm a medical student or a nurse. And, I must be the Botox. (laughs) (laughs) I'm off that age now. Yeah, I was going to say, it gets to a point where it actually becomes a compliment. But when you're you're actually trying to, you know, show that you are the person that's going to, you know, operate on them and save their finger from, you know, um, amputation. Yeah, you don't want anyone to have any doubt in your skill. You want, you know, you want the people who you're looking after to have absolute confidence in your care. Mm. So there were times like that where I felt like I was constantly having to prove myself. And and that does get tiring after the after a while yeah and uh, you also mentioned you know the fact that technically because you'd only been in Australia for the mm. last couple of years of high school before yeah. you um you know went into university that you were actually an international student I was and about you know that's another level of sort of um systemic racism yeah I guess. about mm. how international students are treated yeah we're just seen as you know, money you know yeah. you think oh rich daddy's paying for your degree and then you're going to take the degree back home to your home country yeah. so you're not kind of worth investing in kind of thing that's how I felt through medical school so, so I hated the fact that I was an international student I tried to hide that actually as much as possible and and lucky for me like I was I sounded like an Aussie so it was fine but you know other people who had much kind of stronger accents mm. from the home country I think were more prone to discrimination so I I would have imagined that they had um, a harder time than I did. Yeah, and even yeah. more in the unfairness of the system of that, you know, when you get chosen for your um, first round of <laughs> jobs. Yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and that the local students and then, you know, so that you missed out on a job because... I did, yeah. I didn't get a job in New South Wales yeah. as an intern, so I ended up going to Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Because, because of the way that you were technically an international student, so you were below someone else, even though your score was higher than someone else's. Yeah. Um, it just seems... Yeah, it's a system that from the outside you assume, as a, mm. someone who knows nothing about it, yeah. that, is that it seems like it will be merit-based because why would they ever choose doctors? not based on that because that would be crazy they're looking after our lives yeah you'd and then you hear about it and you, you just it's horrifying for so many <laughs> reasons but a big one is just like it's not optimizing for the best possible doctors um yeah. to look after us that's why we that's why the system should yeah. exist right um it's really that part of it is very upsetting i must say mm. as a potential patient <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, you want the best doctors i guess yeah. and, and you kind of have faith in this meritocracy but it doesn't always happen mm. like that yeah, I yeah. Got, I, unfortunately it's like so many other things where you know we we peel back the layers of something that on yeah. the surface has a veneer of respectability and then you kind of really yeah. see but but you know what joel your surgeon will have an amazing handbag <laughs> <laughs> Well, that'll be really attractive. <laughs> Which well, is what you want, on really, that depressing note, <laughs> I feel like we can probably wrap up this wonderful podcast. I feel like we could keep talking about it. That fascinating book. I highly recommend if you're listening that you have a read. 
um, and for a very limited time, you'll be able to get some signed copies. So um, please, uh, thank you so much, Yumiko, thank for you. coming. Thank uh, you. And thanks so much to for listening. You can buy Emotional Female by Yumiko Kudota at uh, booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au